0: Welcome to Myth vs. Craft. Hello everyone. My guest today is the renowned drummer Jimmy Chamberlain. Though he can play pretty much any type of music, he's best known for his time with the Smashing Pumpkins. Jimmy belongs to an exclusive fraternity of drummers that helped change the face of music in the 90s. Along with his contemporaries, like Stephen Perkins of Jane's Addiction, Dave Grohl of Nirvana, and Matt Cameron of Soundgarden, Jimmy reintroduced sophisticated drumming to rock music and laid the foundation for the music revolution of the 1990s. As you listen to our conversation, I think you'll agree that Jimmy is also a deep thinker and extremely knowledgeable about music. Here we go. Jimmy, thank you so much for for coming on the show. It's a pleasure to speak with you.
1: Yeah, great to be here.
0: I understand that your father played the clarinet and your older brother was a drummer. What kind of music did they play?
1: Um, Well, my dad, you know, who was born in uh, 1925, so, you know, was a real uh, fan of the big band era and, um, you know, followed closely the careers of Benny Goodman and Artie Shaw and then later Pete Fountain. But, you know, so my dad was a big band guy, really Duke Ellington, Count Basie, that type of stuff. And then. My brother, who's, I think, 13 years older than me, so he was really a product of, you know, the mid-60s, late 60s, and through the kind of psychedelic era, and then into, I guess, what would be the dawn kind of of jazz fusion. So, you know, my brother listened to everything from Hendrix, uh, The Who... Uh, all the way, you know, to Jeff Beck and Tony Williams and that type of stuff. So I had a pretty, and then I had three older sisters as well who listened to everything from the Beach Boys to Joni Mitchell um, and everything in between Steely Dan. Um, My middle sister Nancy was a huge Sly and the Family Stone fan, uh, big Stevie Wonder fan, so really into like Marvin Gaye, into Philly Soul and Motown. Uh, So my house, you know, was a pretty crazy, I mean, you could walk from room to room and kind of cross the country and cross, you know, uh, many, many time zones, uh, uh, just moving from the living room to, you know, one of the bedrooms.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Did you uh, start playing the drums because of your brother or was there something else?
1: I did. Yeah. I'm the youngest of six and, you know, I always looked up to my brother, Paul, and still do. Um, We're still, you know, best friends. And, uh, you know, just as younger brothers will do, uh, just emulating their kind of cooler older brother uh, and then just fell in love with it. I mean, I kind of, you know, started because of him and then immediately found my own path and my own trajectory and just really became consumed with it.
0: Did you have much of a sibling rivalry with him uh, when you were both playing drums? Yeah,
1: not really. I mean, he's, like I said, he's 13 years older than me. So, you know, he was so far ahead of what I was doing. You know, I will say, you know, later on, um, as I got into my teens, you know, there were a couple instances, I think, where we had auditioned for the same band, um, you know, here and there. But I wouldn't call it a rivalry. I, I would call it like, you know, just brotherly love.
0: <laughs> the reason I ask is that I think of uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan, who who looked up to his brother Jimmy and idolized him and uh, eventually ended up overshadowing him and, and the dynamic uh, between the two of them, uh, which was really interesting.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think you can look, you know, there's many, um, you know, life gives us many yardsticks and I think as musicians, you know, we certainly get our share. Um, but as far as that goes, I mean, I always look at, you know, drumming is drumming and, you know, the amount of people in the room doesn't really predicate the value of the drumming. <laughs> so, um, you know, we never really looked at it, At least I never looked at it like that. Like, Oh, you know, I made it and he didn't, or, you know, in, in fact, it's an interesting kind of, uh, anecdote, um, to that is that, you know, my brother's now 60, I'm 51. So he's 64. Um, he's a, he's a property owner. He invested in real estate a long time ago. He owns a business. Uh, he loves working on cars. So he owns a business. Um, he's also, uh, the treasurer of his church. Um, he does yoga, you know, two times a week. He's a beekeeper. I mean, he's a complete, you know, he started competitive karate when he was 50, Wow. Uh, you know, just started, got, just got into it. So he's, you know, this kind of de facto Renaissance man and then plays drums on, on the weekends, you know, at a very high level. My kids are nine and 13 and they're huge fans of uncle Paul, you know, when is uncle Paul coming over cause he's, you know, the cool uncle, but, you know, to put it in perspective, I mean, I've got, you know, this kind of storied career. You know, and I play and I've got, you know, a studio here in my house with you know drums, multiple drum sets and you know, a pretty a pretty cush uh, setup. And my kids, you know, sometimes will just say, Why are you so miserable? Like why can't you be happy like Uncle Paul is all the time? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I think um, you know, to put it in perspective, you know, happiness is not quantified by, you know, how many people are in the room. It's basically kind of what you've made out of your own kind of life. So and My brother Paul is uh, the living embodiment of, you know, somebody who has a very uh, rich life Uh, that includes drumming, but not certainly uh, exclusive to that.
0: I read that you started taking lessons at age nine. I also read that you broke your arm when you were 12 and you placed a drumstick in your cast to be able to continue playing drums. That's pretty intense for a 12-year-old. Did you have any interests outside of drumming at that age?
1: Well, you know baseball. I mean, I was a big uh, a baseball player, and you know I thought, you know, if, if the drumming doesn't work out, maybe I could be a baseball player or vice versa. Um, but yeah, you know I was a pretty dedicated practitioner. I think you know once I figured out, and this is a great thing about art, right? And, and music in, in particular, it's it gives you the experience of giving. And interacting with this causal relationship between, um, you know, the more accountable I am to my instrument, the more pleasure I get from it. So I I experienced that at a very early age, you know, with my lessons and kind of practicing. Um, So I, you know, I had a very uh, dedicated practice regimen. So when I did, you know, I did start taking lessons from Charlie Adams when I was nine, uh, who was a great teacher. He happened to live in uh, a couple blocks from my house, well, about a mile from my house. And was really one of my brother Paul's rivals. So Charlie Adams, who now plays with Yanni, lived in Joliet. Him and my brother Paul were probably the two best drummers in Joliet. And they were, you know, basically the same age. Paul may be a little older. Um but they were kind of going at it. And um Charlie was more of the he, you know, studied drummer. He he took lessons from Bill Crowden up at uh Frank's drum shop uh, here in Chicago. And my brother Paul was kind of a more of a self-taught drummer. Um, but both very good drummers in their own right. But, you know, learned all of my book technique from from Charlie. And then, you know, when I did break my arm, which I broke, I think, playing flag football uh, at the Catholic Church, you know, I was in the midst of this, you know, as, as all musicians go through, they go through these spurts of progression. And I was just in this, you know, about to uh, turn a corner on a bunch of stuff. So, yeah, I just The cast only went up to my elbow so I could move my arm um, from my elbow. So I would just (laughs) stick a a drumstick in my cast and then just move my arm on the ride cymbal and just try to play everything else with my left hand. And it really, that went on for about six months. So it ended up up actually being kind of a blessing in disguise because it really added to um, my ability to be ambidextrous. And I think it has a lot to do with, you know, when I set up, um, I've got a lot of crashes on my left side. I'm not real right-hand heavy uh, on the crashes. I think I only have one, you know, 19 and maybe a China over there, and then everything else is on the left. So I think that had a lot to do with that. But, you know, it's just things that happen to kids, you know.
0: (laughs) You uh, played in a wedding band, then a polka band, and eventually a band called JP and the Cats, with whom you played for three years. How old were you at this time?
1: Uh, You know, I was pretty young. So, you know, obviously I started at eight. Um, I practiced, you know, my butt off um, for four or five years. And actually the first band I was in was a band called the Warrior Band, which was uh, a band that was made up of just guys from my neighborhood who were quite a bit older than me. They were all in their early 20s and I was probably 14 um, and we were doing, you know, Rocky Mountain Way, lots of uh, Foreigner, that type of stuff. And we, we gigged pretty regularly because everybody decided me in the band was over 21. So we were able to play the kind of club circuit around town. Um, and then I got a gig um, with the Eddie Carosa Polka Party, uh, which was a pretty big uh, polka organization that had um, on Saturday nights, they had this thing called Polka Party on Channel 26 in Chicago, which is way before cable. And Channel 26 was the Spanish station, uh, albeit for two hours, or one hour uh, in the evening. Uh, one half hour was a fishing show, I think like Babe Winkleman, <laughs> and then the other half hour was Eddie Kuros' Poker Party. So every Saturday I played on the Polka TV show, and then Sunday I would do the radio show. Uh, and that was that went on for a couple of years while I was still in high school. And that was really just great experience because you had to play you know, super crisp, uh, polka drumming at extremely low volumes and still try to be dynamic. Um, so I learned a lot uh, doing that. And then through the various kind of rock bands that I played with uh, in Joliet, uh, one of which was uh, playing an opening slot for a band called J.P. and the Cats. And J.P. and the Cats was a kind of legitimate um, touring show band. Uh, they were a 10-piece, uh, more of like an orchestra, a 10-piece band with uh, four lead singers, a horn section. And they were doing uh, some pretty sophisticated charts like West Side Story and some other stuff, and along with some just some great um kind of comedy and really more of like a review and um at the end of that gig, the drummer for j p. Rob, who was actually j p s brother, came up to me and said, "Hey, you know, I'm leaving this gig, and j p uh, you know loves your drumming. Um would you be interested in um coming and auditioning?" And I thought, man, <clears throat> I finally made it like these guys are these guys are the real deal. They had a bus, they were playing thirty shows a month. um, so I jumped on it. I went up to DeKalb, Illinois, and auditioned, and got the gig and literally like <laughs> the three days later, I was playing you know every night, and that went on for all the way up until the time I joined the pumpkins. I was with that band.
0: Oh wow, were you supporting yourself strictly yeah. through music at this time?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I was just, a, and I always, always was. So yeah, there was a point where, um, you know, JP, uh, I had disconnected from JP f- for a little bit and actually my brother uh, had taken over. Um, and I started doing some construction work, uh, in Joliet, um, just because I always, I always loved it and it, it was really good money. Um, but I was still playing with JP, you know, once in a while. Um, and then when I joined the pumpkins, I was kind of doing both. I was working construction and playing a little bit with JP.
0: Um, I believe it was 1988 when you were still working in construction and uh, met Billy Corgan and started playing with the Smashing Pumpkins. How long did it take you to become fully comfortable playing their music?
1: The Pumpkins, you know, when I joined, they were really, they were really more of a pop band. They were more of a REM uh, with a little bit of Bauhaus, maybe Love and Rockets, that type of thing. Um, So, you know, it didn't take me long to assimilate into that, but it didn't take me long to figure out that there wasn't really a lot in that type of music for me. Um, So when I joined the band, you know, there was a specific set of songs that they had been playing uh, for a while with the drum machine that I just kind of came in and learned the drum machine parts and then just kind of replaced the drum machine. But it wasn't until Billy and I really started exploring, you know, the parameters of our own musicality that it became, uh, you know, a much more interesting relationship when I think, you know, we started working on things like I Am One, and, you know, I had the groove for the intro for Tristessa, um, you know, and then we started doing things like Window Pane and Snail, you know, and he was starting to build in drum solo type stuff at the end and really started to write, you know, not to me, but around me. That's when it really started to, when I started to be able to make it my own, because up to that point, I really... I wasn't interested in playing that stuff. I was really more of a devotee of, you know, Mahavishnu, uh, Jeff Beck, uh, Weather Report, uh, Tony Williams' Lifetime. Yeah, that's the stuff that I really, really dug and really resonated with me. And I don't think, you know, I don't know how long I would have lasted in the Pumpkins if I wasn't able to interject that philosophy into the music. And that's really, I think, once Billy realized that, hey, this kid, you know, least a lot more than I, than I thought, you know, we were able to really take the music um, and cast a widen out with it.
0: I've been talking to many of my guests about uh, not only the, the craft of, of songwriting and, and the music side of things, but the business side of, of the music industry. I understand that everyone in the Pumpkins was, was pretty comfortable with that business side, and you control your promotion, your merchandise. You managed expectations by releasing releasing GISH through a smaller label, even though you already had the deal with Virgin Records. Uh, you knew when to say no. You passed on offers that might have been tempting but weren't a good fit. Where do you think this business acumen came from?
1: Yeah, you know, I think that's, that's a fair statement. I, mean, I think, you know, in all fairness, I think a lot of that came from Billy. I mean, I think he was really, you know, the person that kind of dictated – the integrity and the and the destination and the kind of mission statement of the band and I think you know we all we all really back that up and we it's like when you have a company you have a mission statement and a vision statement and then you know the job of the the leaders and in this case you know there was probably four people that had opinions so call it like four co-founders you know our job is just to completely you know back up and you know completely continue to sell that mission and vision statement. So, you know, we learned the business in and around the parameters that we had set for ourselves. And that, you know, still holds true to today. I mean, there's things that we know, you know, don't fit with the pumpkins. And that's just because, you know, we set those, set those boundaries for ourselves early on. And we knew that to break those boundaries would have been to devalue, you know, what it was about the band that had value. So, yeah, I think, you know, everybody had their line, and Darcy certainly had, you know, a lot of opinions about how the band looked. You know, James had uh, a lot of opinions about how the band was perceived. Yeah, I had tons of opinions about what we were going to play or how it should be performed or how things are going to be arranged, how demonstrative or how how many faces we were going to melt. <laughs> and and Corgan had lots of opinions about what a great song was, you know, so that was a great that was an incredible combination, uh, that added up to a band with an incredible amount of integrity because you couldn't really, there was never an opportunity. Nobody would ever let their guard down long enough for anybody else to put any type of bullshit through, right? Nobody was going to allow a bad photo to leak out. Although you could argue that all of those photos from back then were bad, but certainly (laughs) not according to us. But there was a ton of songs on the scrap heap that lots of people would have thought were a sides, you know, that we just didn't, that just didn't pass muster for one reason or another. And a lot of times it would be, you know, the the person you would least, you you would think would have the least amount of opinion. Like Darcy would just be like, look, I just don't like that song, you know, and that would be good enough for us to just say, man, we need to take a closer look at this because if she doesn't like it, there must be a good reason we're missing. Right. So I think when you can, when you can, <clears throat> harness that you know with respect uh to everybody you create something like the pumpkins that you know becomes bigger than the sum of the parts
0: let's talk about your drumming butch vig who produced both gish and and Siamese stream said that you have a a magic feel that you do this push pull thing and create a hypnotic groove i've heard that you typically didn't play to a click track uh, which enabled you to, to add some movement to the tempos do you still dislike playing to a click
1: yeah, I, I mean, I, it was never a like or not. It was just, it was just, you know, clicks are just tools, right? And some some songs, like when I record today, I've I've done it for long enough to know, like, okay, I should do this to a click because I've got components going in later that's going to be it's going to be difficult, right? Uh, basically, the decision to use a click or not to use a click had more to do with the emotional context of the song, like what is it going to hamper? Is it going to be additive? And a song like, you know, 1979 or Try, 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 or or something that's really, you know, more, more reliant on the narrative, um, to kind of move things around that, you know, it's a lot easier to do those things to a quick songs like Porcelina or Jelly Belly or I am one songs that are kind of visceral and more fluid. You know, for me, for me to interpret those songs correctly, it really, it really, uh, it really, I really needed to be able to move in and out of the verses, and and, and Billy and I got so good at it that you know, if there was a long word, I knew to pull back so he would have time to articulate. I mean, yeah, you know, there's so many, so many micro decisions that go on when you're recording. And the other thing was, we found that going for full takes uh, with the drums and really putting the onus on the drums to convey some of the narrative. Really made for better uh, songs in the end. So we just got used to not playing to a click and not using Pro Tools, and well, there wasn't Pro Tools back then. So, and even on Zeitgeist, we went, you know, no click, full takes to tape uh, for the drums. And I mean, I got so good at it that yeah, I could roll, I could roll off ten takes of a song and they'd be within a second of each other with no click. I mean, you just you get to you know you practice them so much and you'd have them so much committed to muscle memory that. Then you're allowed to perform the song and micro focus on the nuance, um, and I think that's really what Butcher was kind of keying in on. You know, we had a lot of nuance in our playing that was really hard to put your finger on. But whenever you tried to change it, you know, it was like a souffle. Like if you walked on the floor too hard, it would just collapse.
0: Did any of the producers with whom you worked get nervous or resist not using uh, a click? No,
1: no one ever really. I I don't even remember talking about it that much. I mean, Flood and I talked about using it on, you know, when we would overdub drums, like on songs like Raindrops or Try, Try, Try or 1979, we knew that we were going to be putting stuff on top. So, you know, or we were going to, I was going to play and we were going to loop it. You know, we would do that type of stuff to a click. But generally we were kind of left to our own devices and we really weren't caught up in, you know, trying to grid stuff or, (laughs) It was just, hey, does it sound great or not? Because the music we were always attracted to, it just didn't get caught up in that type of stuff. You know, like uh, Derek and the Dominoes or the Allman Brothers or you know, Jeff Beck. I mean, a lot of that stuff is there's Zeppelin even. I mean, there's there's movement all through that stuff or even, you know, great classical pieces, Ulysses Stravinsky or, you know, Cole Porter or Duke Ellington or anything like that. Paul Whiteman. There's tons of movement in the orchestra, so we were always we were always trying to just do what's best for the narrative, and sometimes that meant letting the music kind of move in and around it.
0: As a quick sidebar, you mentioned the Allman Brothers. Have you ever played with another drummer, like with a two drummer setup?
1: Oh yeah, yeah. Um, in fact, Matt Walker and I have done it a few times. My brother and I are constantly playing with each other, but you know, hats off to those guys. I mean, Hi Mo and Butch. I mean. Those guys play together incredible, and I'm a huge, huge fan. i mean i I learned how to play drums you know largely because of jamming to you know the Almond Brothers. I'd put on those records and just play you know the entire Fillmore East record or you know beginnings or any of those great Almond Brothers records is a drum lesson in and of itself.
0: and the reason I ask is that i'm I'm familiar with how you might orchestrate or arrange two guitar parts to complement each other. But I have no clue how you work something out with, with another drummer.
1: Yeah, I think it's a lot like playing in a jazz band, right? So I play in a jazz quartet and a jazz quintet. And you've just got to be cognizant uh, at all times of what the other guy's doing and how you're going to be additive or subtractive to that combination. So, you know, I think Hymo and Butch were just great listeners like any, you know, like Alvin Jones would listen to, to McCoy Tyner or Coltrane. And try to react uh, to what they're doing. Obviously, in drums, you've got to be doing it in real time and trying not to, you know, flam all over the place on somebody else's downbeats. But I think that stuff you get used to doing. The other part just becomes this kind of sixth sense of knowing how somebody plays, knowing when they're not going to play something, and knowing when to insert yourself into that space.
0: You mentioned uh, Elvin Jones. I, I want to say I I read a quote from him at some point talking about Keith Moon and complimenting Keith Moon on being a great drummer precisely because he was a great listener. And, and yeah, I, I yeah. think being a great listener, I think most people would agree is, is crucial, in especially in jazz, but it, crucial really in any type of music that you play. Would you say that's one of the most important qualities that differentiate a, a good musician from a great musician?
1: Yeah, I would say it's the most important quality. I mean, I think obviously technique and facility is is critical to, you know, painting the painting. But, you know, to make the painting great um, in a collaborative sense, you've got to be cognizant of what other people are doing. And also, you've got to be compassionate to what other people are doing. And I, I hear a lot of great drummers, you know, that just piss all over compositions. And, you know, to a young drummer, I mean, that type of kind of, you know, drumming acrobatics may be appealing, but to a songwriter or somebody who, or the bulk of the listening audience who doesn't maybe understand it, the difference between a Rad cue and a triplet, you know, they're simply trying to be moved within the context of a musical composition. So listening, you know, becomes critical and it has everything to do with, you know, why, why are, why are some orchestras so much better than others? Why did Duke Ellington have such great success? I mean, Duke Ellington was able to take, you know, Sonny Greer and Cootie Williams. I mean, some of the best listeners in the world, and you know, right to that strength. Same with you know, Miles Davis with Bill Evans, you know, those types of combinations of people who had the ultimate compassion for the composition is when the greatest, you know, musical performances are recorded.
0: Going back to the Pumpkins for a moment, I always liked their music right from the time it came out. But it wasn't until maybe a couple of years ago that uh, I came across a video of you giving a drum clinic at uh, the Chicago Music Exchange. I, For the first time, really, I really listened to your playing. Um, I think it was Geek USA. And it blew me away. And I had this epiphany where all of a sudden I I realized how crucial your drumming was to each of the songs. And I know it sounds naive, but as someone who who doesn't play the drums, I hadn't really noticed that up until that point. I I got the sense that your drum parts were, you know, deliberately and carefully crafted and composed to drive and and elevate each song. How do you typically come up with your drum parts?
1: I appreciate that. And I think, you know, um, if you listen to, you know, any great band, um, at the heart of that great band um, is a great drummer. And really, you know, that goes all the way back to the Miles Davis Quintet with Tony Williams or Duke Ellington with Sonny Greer or Papa Joe Jones Uh, or Zeppelin with Bonham or Moon, Deep Purple with Ian Pace. I mean, you know, that's the thing. I mean, drummers are always the X factor. You can have, you know, great songs, but the drums really are the the differentiator between what makes things great and and what makes them kind of monumental. For me, again, uh, drum parts uh, are really just uh, a byproduct of how I feel about things. And having you know, a great, uh, repertoire of tools in my toolbox and having listened to thousands and thousands of great drummers, uh, over my, <clears throat> over my lifetime, you know, you start to increase uh, what's available to you, uh, in a given situation. When I hear a composition for the first time, uh, and maybe Billy brings in a song and, um, I just kind of let it flow through me and then i just play whatever comes to my mind and you know oftentimes and i would say probably 90 percent of the time uh, the first thing i play is what i end up playing and again i mean i think that comes from being a good listener but also having just tons of things in your toolbox like that tonight tonight's a great example i think if you watch that drum clinic um i talk about tonight tonight and i start to break down the parts um, you know, the intro part during the verse where it's just the side stick and the hi-hat, you know, I said, look, you know, this is really taken from a Weather Report song that came out years ago that Alex Acuna played on called Birdland, right? And this other part was reminiscent of this Gino Vannelli part that I had heard years ago uh, called uh, The War Suite, where, you know, something about the drumming just really struck me, and I just put it in my back pocket and said, if I ever get into a situation where I can use something like this, like this military type of, uh, movement, you know, I'm going to pull it out. And tonight, tonight was the perfect vehicle for that. So I think it's, I think it's, you know, you go through your life, you take drumming performances and you put them in your back pocket and you say, okay, I'm going to find, or maybe I'll find a situation where I can use that because that really resonates with me and that can become a part of me. So that's really, it's kind of, it's kind of, you know, it's kind of misty about how it all comes about. But <clears throat> for me, it's just a very organic process. It's just drawn upon past experiences.
0: Has that approach changed at all over over time?
1: Yeah, not really. I mean, I, I think, you know, secondarily, Billy and I have written so many songs together and played so much music that you... It becomes like a marriage, right? When you're... You know, there's things... I've been married for 13 years, 14 years now. You're very happily married, but there's just... I know my wife really well, Right. I know how to have a great conversation with my wife, and I know that there's things that she generally doesn't want to discuss, right? Or there's things she doesn't want to talk about, or there's things that kind of, you know, we're in disagreement, so we just don't talk about, you know, certain things. And I'm not saying, you know, that in in any type of like we've got a bad relationship. It's just in the in the in the give and take of any human relationship, you start to you start you both start to craft a vocabulary that's acceptable to both of you that kind of makes the relationship better. And that's really, you know, what Billy and I have is we've got this, you know, unsaid relationship where, you know, we've developed a vocabulary that works both for my drumming and his songwriting. Um, so we don't really think about it that much. And we, we, when we make records, I mean, other than kind of getting into deep philosophical discussions about maybe Thelonious Monk or Cole Porter or, or talking about, you know, a philosophy of songwriting, like, hey, we really want to engage in, you know, simple melody over extremely sophisticated uh, arrangement that still has a semblance of simplicity on top. But when you start to peel the onion apart, it becomes very complex. Much like like a Charles Mingus composition or a Phelonius Monk. Like we'll talk about that type of stuff, but we very rarely talk about, hey, can you play this or can you play that? I mean, that those types of conversations we almost never have because. We've just, over the years, we just know what fits. It's like a jazz orchestra. You just know that, you know, I'm going to grab the brushes, I'm going to grab the mallets, I'm going to grab my drumsticks.
0: You mentioned many of the, the drummers that influenced you um, originally. You also happen to tour extensively with contemporaries, with uh, Chad Smith, with Dave Grohl. Would you say that any of your contemporaries influenced you in any way, or you influenced each other? Oh yeah.
1: Yeah. I think there was a point uh, in the nineties where, you know, we were all listening very carefully to each other and, you know, I'm still a huge fan of Matt Cameron and Dave. And I was just talking to Taylor Hawkins yesterday about some stuff and Stephen Perkins and I are still friends. So I think there was, you know, there was there, you have to understand, like in the nineties, we were coming out of that kind of drum machine, Bauhaus, Love and Rockets. So when the pumpkins and Jane's addiction and Nirvana, and Mud Honey Bol- and Volta and Soundgarden hit for the first time. That was the first time that, like, that type of sophisticated drumming had been heard in a long time. Mm-hmm. I mean, we were all huge, you know, jazz freaks. I mean, you know, Matt Cameron was a huge Elvin Jones fan. I was a huge Tony Williams fan. You know, Perkins was listening to all kinds of crazy shit. So <clears throat> there was a, a real sophistication in the drumming that we all you know, embraced and celebrated through the music. So, you know, in my opinion, you know, that crop of drummers, of which I'm, you know, very honored to be a part of, really changed the face of music, I would say, as much or more than the songs that themselves did. I mean, because before that, you had, you know, you had Thompson Twins or you had, you know, this very kind of drum machine or R.E.M., you know, you had this very basic kind of pop drumming, And we just blew the lid off that stuff with songs like, obviously, Tristessa or, you know, Coming Down the Mountain or, you know, any of those, you know, uh, songs off, you know, Ultra Mega, OK, Gun, you know, Soundgarden. I mean, Christ, those guys were playing songs at 9-8. I mean, (laughs) it was the best thing that could happen to a drummer.
0: I was a teenager in in the early '90s as as I was listening to that music and uh, and played guitar and, and still do and and everything you're saying now makes me want to revisit a lot of that music and and pay closer attention to the drumming just like I did when I when I listened to that uh, drum clinic you gave.
1: Yeah, it's you know it's a it's a you know those songs couldn't have been written without the drumming facility that was available to you know those bands. I mean Matt Cameron an incredible odd time signature drummer. I mean, he could play in five and make you feel like you were playing in four. I mean, that's rare talent. And his pocket was so deep and so uh, greasy. um, You know, it made that music just so sexy and so dark. I mean, if you listen to super unknown, you know, when the band really hit its stride and was really able to, you know, take advantage of Chris's songwriting uh, in a way that I don't think they were able to before. You know, that drumming on like Black Hole Sun is so greasy and so good. I mean, can you imagine that with any other drummer? And it's just not the same type of music.
0: After the Pumpkins, you were a part of Zwan, um, also with Billy Corgan, and later formed the Jimmy Chamberlain Complex. How did your playing change once you were completely free to play anything you wanted to play without anyone else's input?
1: Yeah, I mean I think it went back to it went back to kind of what attracted me to you know, what I was doing in, in the late seventies and, and early eighties. Um it went back to that kind of progressive spot that I always liked, but with a modern twist on it. Um I think I was able to go back and celebrate that type of drumming with a big with a, a much broader knowledge of song construction and kind of what made things interesting. Yeah, I think it changed a lot. I mean, I think it's it really it got me out of the support role and got me really into kind of a lead role, um, which was, which was a little bit different of a headspace to be in um, as a drummer. But, you know, I think if you sit and you listen to me in 1989 or me in 2009, there's definitely lots and lots of common threads. I mean, you know, I think I, I pretty much for better or worse, I have, you know, a ton of identity in my playing you know, some some like it, some don't. Um, but nevertheless, I mean, my playing at any given time has always just been whatever that current representation of that identity was. But nevertheless, still rooted in that kind of the way Jimmy plays or the way you know I've always played.
0: You returned to the Pumpkins in two thousand six and toured extensively with them. You left in two thousand nine and again rejoined the band this past summer for the uh, the tour with Marilyn Manson. What drives you to periodically revisit the pumpkins?
1: Yeah, I think that's that's a good question. I mean, I think obviously, you know, that's a it's a celebration of you know a big a big piece of my identity. There's a legitimacy um, and a sacredness um, to billionized relationship that really can't be. You can't go for too long without reengaging it and i think you know he would probably feel the same way i mean i think you know we can go for spurts um and go find things but it always seems like we're going to find things to bring back <laughs> to the home planet you know um <laughs> i think you know we're we're probably going to work again uh, together this year and you know he said i mean when i came back uh for this last tour you know he turned around and said man you're playing better than you've ever played before. I've never heard you play this free. And it has everything to do with me going and playing with my jazz quartet for the last two years. I mean, I'm playing extremely complicated, extremely, you know, sophisticated, you know, jazz pop drumming. Um and then going back and playing the pumpkins, it's not it's not as challenging as when you're living in that pumpkins value a vacuum and you're playing, you know, that represents the top of your game. You know, the top of my playing is kind of at least from a facility standpoint is beyond kind of what that band you know is doing now or or you know and remains to be seen whether we can incorporate that stuff into you know what what we'll do this year but it's like anything i mean it's a great band and it's a great music and you know we have a great relationship um, musically it's bigger than any kind of emotion or any kind of thing you make any decisions you make in the physical space, right? There's a spiritual component to it that has to be addressed. Otherwise, you're really not living your life. It has a lot of uh, complexity to it, but, but can still be explained very simply. The music is great. When we get together, great things happen. When we're not together, okay things
0: happen. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned your jazz uh, quartet. Is uh, Frank Catalano part of that? He's a jazz saxophonist, and you announced you've recorded three albums now?
1: That's right. Yeah, we did, uh, we did a John Coltrane retrospective with some a great additional musicians, Percy Jones, who I've been a huge fan of my entire life. Percy played you know, not only with Brian Eno, but played with um, Brand X for many years. And I lived and breathed that Brand X record, uh, Unorthodox Behavior, uh, for many summers as a young man, trying to figure out what the hell Phil Collins is doing on that record. And so to get a chance to play with Percy was a dream come true. And that really spawned, you know, more recording with Frank. And those records have gone on to be very successful. I think um, two of those records have been in the Billboard Top 10 wow. uh, Jazz Charts for some time now. Uh, so that's that's been great. And, you know, every time we play, lots of Pumpkin fans come out and they get to see a different side of me. I play a very small kit, you know, 18-inch bass drum, you know, 10 and 12 and 14-inch toms and just a couple cymbals. Um, and it's a totally different part of my drumming, but one that I take very seriously.
0: I'm sure that you, you enjoy live performance with your jazz quartet as you do with the pumpkins, despite the entirely different context for each one. What do you think you get? What do you enjoy the most from each of them?
1: Well, you know, the, the pumpkins is, is kind of, it's like going to a science fair, right? It's like unveiling your science project for the masses (laughs) and playing in the jazz band is like allowing, is like allowing people to watch you build your science project, right? So it's a little bit different, you know, pumpkins, it may take a year to play five minutes worth of music. um, Just when it comes down to writing and arranging and recording in the jazz band, it takes the same amount of time to make the music as it does to listen to it. (laughs) I mean, the, the, the last record we made, was all just go into the studio, one take, make it up as you go, and then you're done. There's not a lot of uh, you know second guessing and guesswork. It's a very living, breathing, organic thing. And the Pumpkins can be the same, but certainly when you're playing you know back catalog and hit songs, I mean, you're going to stay you know pretty much close to the template. Whereas in the jazz band, and we could change things every night. We can play Serenade to a Cuckoo as a bossa Nova, and you know nobody's going to know that we didn't do it that way the night before.
0: Mike Campbell from The Heartbreakers was on the show, and uh, he compared his experience playing with The Heartbreakers against performing with his uh, side project, The Dirty Knobs, and it seemed like uh, it was a similar situation where playing with The Heartbreakers was much more structured and playing with The Dirty Knobs was an outlet, uh, his jazz band of sorts, where each one was fulfilling in its own way.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's right. I mean, I think he, as a musician, You've got to have somewhere to take it, right? And I think if you're if you're playing you the same notes in the same order and the same songs every night, it gets very monotonous. You know, although there's a challenge to that. You know, for me as a musician, as somebody who continues to practice and try to evolve on the instrument, yeah, it's great to have a vehicle like my my jazz group that I can go out and explore and embrace the work that I'm doing. You know, and I can do that when the pumpkins are in a working cycle. I mean, I can certainly, you know, bring that inventiveness to the practice space and I can work it into songs. But in the jazz band, it's just a lot more immediate.
0: Mm -hmm. Let's go back to the 90s for a moment. In 2010, you told Rolling Stone that music, you felt that music is a smaller part of people's lives now. And, uh, quote, people don't sit around like they did in the 90s and stare at album covers thinking about Kurt and Billy. I hated the 90s. Do you still feel the same way? Um, I mean, I still feel. I still think that's a valid point. Um, I think music
1: consumption habits have changed. I think music has become. It competes for a lot of the same space, the headspace that other things compete with, uh, compete for, like Facebook and Twitter. I think music was a standalone experience in the '90s. I mean, until video came along, it was even more of a solitary experience. So. You know, video achieved, you know, a different type of cultural connectivity. And I think music still has an important spot, but it's become more of the background music to another experience. And I think a lot of it has to do with the way the music or the vehicle by which the music is consumed. And you know, my daughter's a great example. She's a big David Bowie fan, and she's got most of my vinyl record collection now in her room. She's 13. She's got a record player. And she's, you know, she's got everything from Curtis Mayfield to, you know, Hunky Dory uh, to Joni Mitchell, uh, Ricky Lee Joe. I mean, just about everything up there, Earth, Wind, and Fire. And when she plays her records, she does have that analog experience. She'll put the needle down on, say, Earth, Wind, and Fire's Greatest Hits, and she'll sit down on her bed and she'll stare at the record. And when she, and then she'll, 20 minutes is up and she's had that exchange and she'll get up but when she's listening to her iPod, she's got an iPhone, so if she's listening to Apple Music or Spotify or whatever and she's got, you know, some of her contemporary music on, which is I don't know what she says Imagine Dragons or whatever she's listening to, there's this other type of exchange. It becomes the background music for this multitasking, right? Mm-hmm. As soon as it, as, soon as, she, as soon as she starts streaming something, she's got her earbuds in, and then all of a sudden she's cleaning her fish tank or she's doing you know some other thing, or she's even reading maybe. And it's just a different type of consumption. And I see, you know, there's a difference there. And I don't know if it's the analog to digital, or if it's just the record does something different to people because of the way it vibrates. I mean, but there's definitely a difference. So I think the consumption habits have changed. You know, the, uh, the availability of time has become completely compressed because there's more to do in the day. I mean, Think of a day in 1994 when you got up and let's say it was Saturday. What did you have to do all day? I mean, right now, if you get up on a Saturday, you may be looking at your computer till 11 o'clock or checking email or doing other things. I mean, there's so many other things competing for that time that take up our time. You know, music is taking up certainly less of that time now. Or if it is, it's being consumed uh, concurrently with other things.
0: Let's uh, switch gears for a moment. You were the CEO of the tech company LiveOne from 2012 to until last year, and recently co-founded uh, Blue Jay Strategies, which I believe is uh, you, you partner with companies in the media, entertainment, and technology sectors. What motivates you to pursue such different interests?
1: I mean, I think I've always been interested in cultural connectivity <clears throat> and whatever is driving culture. And I think that stems from me being a fan of history and trying to find, trying to read between the lines as far as what was motivating people to do the things they did when they did them. Um, so I see technology as a real having that type of cultural connectivity that music once enjoyed um, in the 90s. I mean, music was so so ingrained in the culture in the 90s that if you wanted to participate in the culture and you were 25 in 1992. You pretty much had to know who the pumpkins were. You had to have the nirvana shirt. you know there was a it was a big cultural driver. And I think you know music it still enjoys that, but it's certainly sharing that cultural driver's seat with a lot of other things, one of them being technology, and one of them being the availability of information. So I see you know technology, social media, the available of information is kind of taking on some of the role of music in that you know it becomes a conduit for truth at some point. And, and granted, you can look at the internet in, in many ways and say it can also be a conduit for falsehood. But in the midst of that availability of information, there's an accountability that goes back and forth. And I think when you have, you know, boots on the ground or uh, real, real, real information by people who are really uh, on site, it creates accountability in the media. It creates accountability between ourselves, and that's interesting to me. And I think, you know, music used to do that. I mean, when you listen to Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young talking about the shooting at Kent State, that created accountability for those situations. Governments were forced to listen. You know, if musicians aren't going to have the balls to call out what's going on in the world, then, you know, I'm going to start looking in other areas for that type of truth, right? So if I can get real information about what's going on through Social media or information on the web, then that that creates that has cultural ramifications. I think that are greater than people perceive right now, and that's really what what interests me about technology. More so than I'm really into code, or I'm into trying to build clever apps.
0: Right. Do you see any qualities that have served you well, both uh, as a musician and as a businessman?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think I think anybody who understands how to write a song or how to play an instrument um, already has uh, a broad understanding of technology and what needs to happen for technology to be efficacious and effective. So, you know, I think the accountability uh, that I have to my instrument has taught me a ton about business. I think by the information I possess about what makes a great song um, makes me a great candidate to look at technology and see whether it's resonant because technology is a lot like it's very musical, right? And when you think about, an application like say Twitter, you know, which is a great compelling tool, um, for people who, you know, know how to use it in the right way. When you look at it in terms of a song, right. It's got some, it's got a great rhythm rhythmic foundation. It's got, it's got a great uh, chord structure. It's got harmony and it's got a narrative, right? It's got the, it's got the same things that a hit song would have. And when you can start to look at technology in those terms, you know, does it have rhythm? Does it have a foundation? Is there a narrative? Does it have a chorus? You know those types of things. It allows you to see inside uh, of what people are feeling when they, when they look at technology, because most people, when they hear a hit song, are going, "Man, that's a great bridge." or I can't believe they opened up with the chorus, right? But the songwriter is always thinking in those, those terms, because they want to create the most emotional impact that they can with their offering. That's like, if you listen to today, the song, Pumpkin song today, it opens up with the chorus, right? That's a great, that's a great trick um, to do with a song with such a compelling chorus like that. It's like the Beatles, She Loves You, right? It opens up with the chorus. I mean, that, you know, when you've got a chorus like that, that's what, you, that's what you open with. And the same thing with technology. If you know those things, you can look at technology in those, that kind of broader musical sense and make determinations about the efficacy of that product.
0: That's a really interesting perspective. Jimmy, uh, I know you have a lot going on, and I'm really grateful that you took the time to speak with me. I sincerely appreciate it. I've enjoyed it very much.
1: Yes, fantastic. Good to chat.